Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. I am so happy to be with you guys today and I come bearing gifts. After getting to hang out with the guys from Palmetto State Armory at the NRA convention last weekend, look for the write-up later this week, wink, wink, I thought I'd start off your Wednesday with not one, but two CZUSA deals that they do have on their site. The full size and the compact CZP10 are both on sale for $399, which is a savings of $250, notably The full size is also optics ready, so I found y'all a good deal on a Trigicon RMR Type 2, regularly $749.99, on sale for $499.99. Deals that you do not want to pass up because they will not be available much longer. The links, as always, are in the show description. Please check them out and let me know what you're in the market for, and I will try to help you out too. The story on everyone's lips and minds right now is the story of Andrew Lester and Ralph Yarrow. First and foremost, I want to begin with two things. In the United States of America, you have the presumption of innocence and a fundamental right to due process. I am not entirely sure when the media, celebrities, and even the president of the United States publicly condemning you how you're ever expected to receive a free and fair trial, but here we are. The second thing I want to note is that not everything is binary. Just because X happens doesn't always mean Y. Two things can be true at the same time. Mr. Lester could very well have been in fear of his life and Ralph Jarl could very well have innocently been at the wrong home. Andrew Lester has been charged with first degree assault and armed criminal action, both of which are felonies. According to the probable cause statement that was filed by police, Jarl had gone to the wrong address to pick up his siblings around 10 p.m. and was shot through a glass door after he rang the doorbell. Immediately, I have questions. Where were the siblings at 10 p.m. on a school night that Jarl was so unfamiliar with that he would have gone to the wrong house to retrieve them? Secondarily, why was Jarl picking them up and instead of the parents that late at night. Who recovered the children after the shooting? Lester told investigators that he had gone to bed. Y'all know that man was in bed. He's 85 years old. He is in bed at 7 p.m. That he had gone to bed when the doorbell rang and that he went to the door armed with a 32 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. Lester said when he opened the door, he saw a black male he did not know was pulling on the exterior door handle and thought that his home was being broken into, according to the statement. Lester said he fired twice through the glass door and that Jarl ran away and he used his home phone to dial 911. Lester said he saw a car in the driveway of his home that he believed belonged to the male but did not see anyone inside it. Lester told the police that no words were exchanged. Lester said that firing his weapon was the last thing he wanted to do, but he was scared to death because of Jarl's age and size. Jarl was interviewed at the hospital 
the following day and gave a different version of events. Key question here from me would be, did anyone have access to Jarl prior to the police interviewing him? He told a detective that he did not pull on the door and that he was merely waiting at the door after having rung the doorbell when Lester opened the door holding a firearm. Key question here when processing this scene, did officers take fingerprints of both the doorbell and door handle? Jarl stated that he was immediately shot in the head and fell to the ground. Then he was shot in the arm. Jarl said that he heard a voice say, don't come around here. Here's where things get interesting in the article. It's my understanding that Jarl then got up off of the porch and ran to multiple houses. Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not. Um, But again, here's where things get interesting for me. Clay County Prosecuting Attorney Zachary Thompson said there was a racial component to the case. What component? What proof is there of that? Even though Thompson said there was a racial element, Lester will not be charged with a hate crime. Why not? Because it would be a lesser degree of felony than what he's been charged with, according to a spokesman. So wait a minute. Are prosecutors charging people of crimes evidence has shown the accused is beyond a reasonable doubt guilty of committing, and the state believes they have enough evidence to prove guilt? Because remember, the burden of proof is on the prosecution, not the burden of proving innocence on the accused, in spite of what many people would have you believe, (coughs) Nancy Pelosi. Or are prosecutors charging people of crimes that they can find a way to fit the defendant in the case with the maximum penalty for politically expedient media coverage? The spokesperson for Thompson said, our office has charged the defendant in this case with an A felony which is four classes higher than a hate crime enhancement, could take a charge. That is also why Lester wasn't charged with attempted murder, the spokesperson said, because the charge would have a lower level of offense than assault in the first degree and carry with it a lower range of punishment. Thompson said he understands the racial components and context that surround a case like this. However, legally speaking, There's not a racial element to the legal charges that were filed. Jarl has been released from the hospital and police indicated that they tried to reach his family Sunday and Monday to conduct a formal interview, but had trouble making contact. His mother, though, had no problem appearing uh, in front of the courthouse for NBC News to make a statement on Tuesday saying, I just want justice to be served. So whatever is the right amount of justice, for this situation should be granted out to him. Nothing more, nothing less, just the right amount. That's it. Lee Merritt, who is representing Jarl's family, said that he was satisfied with the charges and the fam- and that the family want to see it through to a conviction and appropriate sentencing. Halle Berry and Joe Biden, along with rallies of demonstrators, have called for justice, as well as safe communities for Black people. I will end with the statement that I began with. Two things can be true. Jarl could have been innocently at the wrong home, and Lester could have been afraid for his life. I have reached out to the Public Relations Office for the Kansas City Police Department, asking the following questions. Number one, were prints collected from the door handles and knobs and doorbell of Mr. Lester's home? 
I'm not asking for the results, just whether or not police processed the scene at the time of the incident and if the prints were in fact collected. Number two, what was the address the younger children were allegedly staying at in relation to Mr. Lester's home? I will not print the address and I am not asking for it. I'm only asking for proximity. Number three, how were the younger children recovered following the incident? Did any officers witness the younger children being at another location besides their own home? Who were the children allegedly staying with? Number four, was the glass in fact shot out of the storm door? We shall see if they give a response. Lester is innocent until proven guilty, and I'm sick of pretending that accusations equal convictions, especially when it comes to the right to defend yourself and stand your ground. Mexico's president lashed out Monday on what he called U.S. spying and interference in Mexico days after U.S. prosecutors announced charges against 28 members of the Sinaloa cartel for smuggling massive amounts of fentanyl into the United States. The three sons of former drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, known as the Chapitos, were among those charged. President André Manuel López Obrador suggested a Monday that the case had been built on information gathered by U.S. agents in Mexico and said foreign agents cannot be in Mexico. <laughs> He called the Sinaloa investigation abusive, arrogant interference that should not be accepted under any circumstances. A former top U.S. drug enforcement agent called the president's comments unjustified. Mike Vigil, who is the former head of international operations for the DEA, said Lopez Obrador made mistakenly assumingly, or I'm sorry, was mistakenly assuming that U.S. agents need to be in Mexico to collect intelligence for the case. In fact, much of the case appears to have come from trafficking suspects that were caught in the United States. He wants to completely destroy the working relationship that has taken decades to build, Vigil said. This is going to translate into more drugs reaching the United States and more violence and corruption in Mexico. The Mexican president also made it clear that fighting fentanyl trafficking takes a back seat to combating Mexico's domestic security problems and that Mexico is only helping out of goodwill. What we have to do first is guarantee public safety in our own country. That is the very first thing, Lopez Obrador said, and in second place, help and cooperate with the United States government. Vigil pointed out that it was the very same cartels trafficking fentanyl and methamphetamines that caused most of the violence in Mexico. According to confrontations with cartels, is unlikely to bring peace, Vigil said, noting. It is going to have exactly the opposite effect. The U.S. charges announced Friday revealed the brutal and shocking methods the cartel, based in the northern state of Sinaloa, used to move massive amounts of increasingly cheap fentanyl into the United States. Lopez Obrador deeply resents the U.S. allegations of corruption in Mexico and fought tooth and nail to avoid a U.S. trial of former Defense Secretary General Salvador Cienfuegos on U.S. charges of aiding a drug gang in 2020. Lopez Obrador at one point threatened to kick DEA agents out of Mexico unless the general was returned, which he was. 
Cienfuegos was quickly freed once he returned. Since then, the Mexican government has imposed restrictive rules on how agents can operate in Mexico and slowed down visa approvals for a time. It's a good thing we're so worried about Ukraine's border, though, and I'm certain that having a great relationship with Zelensky will improve conditions and cooperation with our own border country. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell recently testified before Congress on the current state of the U.S. economy. In addition to monetary policy, Powell was questioned about the Fed's regulatory proposals regarding cryptocurrencies and climate-related financial risks. Barely mentioned, however, was the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed has experienced significant operating losses over the last six months, which have exhausted its existing capital. Those losses represent foregone revenue to the U.S. Treasury. In the post-pandemic period, the Fed expanded the money supply significantly to support a swift economic recovery. It did so by purchasing vast amounts of U.S. Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. While at first, those assets seemed like good investments, they are now a major hole in the Fed's financial position. When the bulk of the Fed's quantitative easing, or QE, programs took place in 2020 and 2021, market rates on long-term treasury bonds fluctuated, mostly in the range of 1.5 to 2.0%. At the time, the Fed was paying interest on bank reserves and overnight reserve purchase, which is ONRP, agreements of 0.15 or less. The Fed profited on the difference between the higher rate it received from its bond purchases minus the lower rates it paid on reserves and ONRRPs. Now the Fed has raised the interest. It pays to 4.8% on ONRRPs and 4.9% on bank reserves. But the rates it earns on its qualitative easing, quantitative easing, not qualitative, Purchases remain mostly unchanged, assuming as a rough approximation that the bonds it purchased pay an average rate of 1.75% and the average rate paid on bank reserves and ONRRPs is 4.85%. Then the Fed is paying about 3.1% per year more than it receives on its $7.88 trillion securities portfolio. That's a loss of $244 billion a year. In traditional layman's terms, the Fed is bankrupt, and I don't just mean intellectually. Like a private bank, the Fed maintains some level of capital as a buffer against losses. When those losses exceed the value of its capital, the Fed becomes insolvent, meaning the liabilities it owes to others are greater than the total value of the assets it holds. The most recent data shows that the Fed owes the Treasury over $48 billion, which exceeds its total capital. The Fed, by common standards, is insolvent. What does the Fed do when its liabilities exceeded its assets? It doesn't go into legal bankruptcy like a private company would. Instead, it creates fictitious accounts on the assets side of its balance sheet, known as, quote, deferred assets to offset its increasing liabilities. Deferred assets represent cash inflows the Fed expects in the future that will offset funds it owes to the Treasury. 
As the Fed describes, the deferred asset is the amount of net earnings the reserve banks will need to realize before their remittances to the U.S. Treasury resume. The Fed had already accrued $48 billion in deferred assets, and the amount is only getting larger. The advantage to deferred assets is that the Fed can continue its normal operations without disruption. Although considering the 40-year high inflation, its recent performance has been less than ideal. The disadvantage is that at a time when the Fed is already worsening the U.S. fiscal position by raising interest rates and therefore interest payments on the federal debt, it is further robbing the Treasury of revenues by deferring them into the future. Those deferred payments, of course, must be shouldered by who? The American taxpayer, until the Fed's remittances resume. Those losses may be offset by any previous gains on the Fed's quantitative easing portfolio, but assessing the net effects of those actions is even more difficult. QE has created massive distortions in the financial system. The Fed's interest rate tools of interest on bank reserves and ONRRPs have significantly curtailed short-term lending in the banking and financial systems. In addition to its role in managing the money supply, the Fed is the primary regulator of most U.S. banks. If any private bank behaved this irresponsibly, regulators such as the Fed or Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or FDIC would force it to close. Bank managers would lose their jobs and incomes. Clearly, Congress is not planning to shut down the Fed and is unlikely to even punish it for poor performance. But there are changes that could be made. The banks are members that, I'm sorry, the banks that are members of the Federal Reserve System could be forced to cover the capital shortfall, as described in the Federal Reserve Act. The Fed could return to a corridor system of monetary policy, resulting in lower interest paid on bank reserves and ONRRPs, relative to market rates and therefore fewer reserves held at the Fed. Shrinking the Fed's balance sheet would make another Fed insolvency less likely, while also reducing the Fed's footprint and the distortions it creates in the financial system. At the very least, Fed officials should better manage its operations so as to not be a drain on American taxpayers again in the future. Do we think that's going to happen? No, absolutely not. Nearly six years after a gathering of white nationalists in Charlottesville erupted in violent clashes with counter-protesters, a grand jury in Virginia indicted multiple people on felony charges for carrying flaming torches with the intent to intimidate. The Albemarle County Commonwealth's attorney, I think that's how you say that name, said in a news release that the indictments relate to events on August 11th of 2017 when white nationalists carrying torches marched through the campus of the University of Virginia. According to court records, three indictments have been made unsealed. They are against William Zachary Smith of Nakona, Texas, Tyler Bradley Dykes of Bluffton, South Carolina, and Dallas Medina of Ravenna, Ohio. Each is charged with a single count of burning an object with the intent of intimidating a person or group of people, 
The charge carries a maximum penalty of up to five years in prison. Smith's attorney, Cody Villalon, declined to comment. Dykes and Medina do not have attorneys listed in court records. The indictments issued in February, but only recently unsealed, come almost six years after the largest gathering of white nationalists in a decade. Prosecutors said the new indictments were issued as part of a criminal investigation that is active and ongoing, adding that they're working with law enforcement to investigate, analyze applicable laws, and bring charges when appropriate. This is our process, regardless of how much time has passed or where the alleged offenders may be found, they said. I am digging into the U.S. versus Ionov at all case for the next episode. I would have discussed that one today, but I want to find out a little bit more information first. You can kind of look into that, get a sneak peek of what I'm going to discuss, and then I will be back with you uh, probably Friday morning. We have book club this evening on Twitter Spaces at 10.15. We are starting a new book. It is... um, Red Rising is the name of the book written by Pierce Brown. I think that's his name. Should have been better prepared with that before I announced it. Anyway, uh, we are reading the first three chapters for that book this evening and discussing. We would love to have you. If not, I will see you guys on Friday morning. You take care. Have a wonderful day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.